today. It's great to be with you. Um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. We're in a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, series going through the book of Philippians, and we'll be in Philippians chapter 4 today. And we come to Philippians chapter 4, um, and it's what we find here at the beginning of this chapter is the purpose for which Paul writes this letter. I got a map for you here. Uh, we looked at this some weeks back, and you can see the Aegean Sea, and at the northern tip of the Aegean Sea is the city of Philippi. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians. So he's writing this letter to a specific group of people. He's not writing just theological doctrine for all of us to hear and all of us to consider. He actually had some specific issues in this church that Paul wanted to address, um, some specific problems that had developed there, some things that were unique to this particular congregation. And so we're going to discover today what that particular issue was. And so um, let's take a look at that together. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Philippians chapter 4, or you can follow along with us on the screen. Let's stand together and read uh, from Scripture the purpose for which Paul writes the letter. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Let's read together. Paul says, I urge, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche, to agree with each other in the Lord. Verse 3, he says, Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And then Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You may be seated. We'll come to Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 here in just a little while. Uh, but just log that in your mind. Now, you hear these terms, Iodia and Syntyche, and you think, is that animal, vegetable, or mineral? What are we talking about here? No, these are actually names of some women that were at this church in Philippi. Uh, they are names that occur, he says, in verse 3, he says, Yes, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women. Those names may sound kind of funny to us, but in extra-biblical uh, uh, Greek literature, we see those two names. They're common names, kind of like Sally, kind of like Sharon. In our modern culture today, Yodi and Syntyche, these were names that were common back in the first century. Well, what else do we know about these women? In verse 3, Paul says that they contended at my side and the gospel. So these were not just two ladies who attended this church. They were not just two members of this church, but rather they had been part of Paul's ministry exploits, that they had been part of going out and planting churches along with the Apostle Paul in Asia Minor. He mentions their Clement in verse 3, and the rest of my fellow workers. Clement, we know from elsewhere in the New Testament, was a prolific planner of churches. He was a man who was seasoned in ministry. And so these two women, Iodia and Syntyche, had worked alongside Paul, the Apostle Paul, and all of his ministry exploits, as well as alongside of Clement. So these two ladies were ladies that had been out there sharing the gospel. They were passionate about leading people to Christ. They'd been part of church planning efforts. They'd been part of teaching the Word of God. And Paul, because of that, respected them greatly. Paul says, they had contended at my side. In the Greek, that literally means that they had strived together in the cause of the gospel. Like people who had been on the same team together. They had been through a lot together. They had been in the locker rooms together. They had seen highs. They had seen lows. They had been persecuted alongside the Apostle Paul. They had taught the gospel. They had experienced much together. They were sold out for its cause. And so Paul says, because of that, they had contended at my side. What else do we know about these women? Back to verse 2. Paul says, I plead with Yodia, and then he repeats that line again. Anytime in Scripture you see a repetition, that's always a point of emphasis. So he says, I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche. Um, and so pleading with somebody, that's a very emotional thing. That's not like turning to somebody and saying, hey, could you please pass the salt? Right? This is something that's an emotional appeal that Paul is making here. It's kind of like a parent who's pleading with their rebellious child. It's kind of like a, a spouse who's pleading with their other spouse not to leave the home. It's kind of like a coworker who's pleading with their boss 
to please reconsider this decision that you're about ready to make. This is an emotional appeal that Paul is making. I wouldn't say that it's begging, but it's pretty close. I mean, Paul is kind of like down on his knees saying, I'm pleading with the two of you. And what is it that Paul's pleading with them to do? He says, to agree with each other in the Lord. Now, if you think about it, this is quite a change of direction from where these two women had been to where things are at between them right now. Remember, they had been in, uh, they'd been out preaching the gospel. They've been sharing the gospel. They've been part of kind of the Billy Graham crusade in Asia Minor in the first century. And now all of a sudden, something has happened. A rift has developed between these two women. These are two women who contended at Paul's side in the gospel, and now Paul's pleading with them to get along. He's pleading with them to agree with each other in the Lord. So here's these two women who have had shared ministry, remarkable ministry, um, and now something is amiss. If Paul is having to plead with them to agree with each other, that tells us again that a wedge has formed. You say, well, what was the wedge? What is the issue? What's going on between these two women? What's got them upset with one another? Well, we don't know. Paul doesn't mention what it is. Perhaps Paul knew, I'm sure he did, Epaphroditus had carried uh, this letter back to the Philippian church. Epaphroditus was a part of that church in Philippi. And so he brings a report of what's happening in Philippi back to Paul. So Paul knows what the issue is, but it's not important for Paul to mention what it is. What's important is that these two women who had contended at Paul's side come together in their common love of the Lord and that they bridge this gap, they bridge this disunity, they bridge this rift that has developed between the two of them. Now, there's one more important detail in this story, and I think it's worth noting, and that involves who gets to read this letter. If you flip back with me to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, the first lines of this letter, the opening remarks, we discover who Paul writes this letter to. Now, remember, here in Philippians chapter 4, deep into the letter, he addresses an issue that's taken place between Iodia and Syntyche. But we see in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 who's actually going to get to read this letter. Hmm. Let's take a look. He says, Paul and Timothy servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi and to the overseers and the deacons. So who's going to get to read this letter? Hmm? The church. You all. So that means that everybody who uh, is going to get to read about this rift between Iodi and Syntyche. Now, it's really important here to know how this letter would have been transmitted to the local church. It wasn't something that was read and then the summary notes were given to the church. Rather, this, note, this letter would have been read in front of the local church. Paul would have had a wax ring or a signet seal, and I got a picture here for you of what that might have looked like. They didn't have an envelope that you, you know, licked back in the day and then sealed it, and then everybody knows that it didn't get open until it gets open. Um, but instead, they had a wax ring, and Paul would have had a signet ring, or he would have had a wooden stamp with his initials on it, and he would have stamped into that wax ring, and that's how he would have sealed this letter or sealed this scroll that he had written this letter on. And so what happens is that, that scroll gets brought before the local church on a Sunday morning. It arrives in Epaphroditus' hands. It's been guarded. It's been protected. Nobody gets to read it ahead of time. Nobody gets to check out what's in the letter ahead of time. Instead, it's, the wax seal is broken in front of the church, and then it's read aloud in front of everybody that's there. Now think about this. Yodi is sitting on one side of the congregation. Syntyche is sitting on the other side of the congregation. And so uh, it's Sunday morning, and this letter from Paul is opened up, and everybody's excited about getting this letter from Paul. They know Paul's a great teacher, and he's going to share some good doctrine with them. They're excited about what Paul's going to share, and they hear Paul write in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, uh, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And Yodi and Syntyche are nodding their heads. That's absolutely right. That's good teaching. And then they hear Paul say, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. Did you hear that, Syntyche? 
or with vain conceit, but with humility regard others as yourself. Yeah, I did hear that, Yodia. I hope you heard that. Look, not only to your own interest, he says in verse 4, but also to the interest of others. And so they're nodding their heads there, amen, and this is all good stuff. Paul, you're preaching right to her over there, right? You're speaking right into her life. Holy Spirit, convict her. And then Paul is going through this letter, and everybody in the church, everything's going good. He's teaching all this great theology, all this great doctrine. Then he comes to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, and he says, and I plead with Yodia Sunday morning in front of everybody. (laughs) And I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Can you say, yikes? I mean, oh my goodness. I uh, would have liked to have been a fly on the wall that Sunday morning. Let me just real, real quickly tell you what difference all this makes to your life. Just, I'm going to address one question real quick, and we will not do that here. Okay? Uh, we just will not do that here. We will not air out your stuff in this bulletin. We will not uh, call out your name on Sunday morning in front of everybody. But in this occasion, whatever was happening between Eodi and Syntyche through Epaphroditus, who had brought this message and what was happening in local church in Philippi, whatever was happening between these two women apparently had enveloped the whole church. Some people had said, you know what, Iodia makes a really good point. And I kind of see her point, and I agree with what she's saying. But then other people in the church said, you know what, I see where Syntyche's coming from, and I think she's more right, and I think she's wrong, and I think you're wrong then. And so what's happened is not only is this rift opened up between these two ladies, but now this rift is opened up between the whole church, and there's a divide in the whole church. And so Paul, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, feels like he needs to address this issue in the open. Okay? We don't do that here. Okay? Everybody take a deep breath. Whew, so glad for that. Not going to do that. Okay, so what difference is all this? That's our treatment of this text. What difference does all this make to your life and mine? You say, Gordon, again, I'm glad that my stuff's not going to be in the bulletin next Sunday. But besides that, this sounds like something between Paul, Iodia, Syntyche, the church at Philippi. What difference does any of this make to my life? Oh, that's a really great question. Let me see if I can answer that. In the time that I have left, I want to look at this issue from two angles. First is, how do we confront someone in a biblical manner? What does that look like? And then secondly, when, we're, when we are the person being confronted, how do we receive that in a mature uh, Christian way? That is to say, what should our response be? What should our reaction be when somebody comes to us with an issue between, or at least perceived issue between us and them? How do we respond to that? All right, first of all, how do we confront someone? Where there's an issue between us, maybe there's a problem, some bad habits in that person's life that's bubbling up um, with somebody, you know, and we are, we're in a position of moral and relational uh, credibility with this individual. How do we confront them about that? in a way that's healthy, in a way that's edifying of the individual, of the person. Well, the Bible's very clear about this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, Jesus talks about the issue of judging others. He says in verse 1, judge not, or you too will be judged. Now, this is one of the most often misinterpreted passages in all of Scripture by popular culture. People say, see, Jesus said don't judge. Friends, if you keep reading, Jesus does not uh, here issue a prohibition against evaluating somebody else against critiquing somebody else, against going to somebody else with an issue that you have between yourself and them. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying when you go to them, don't go with a heart of judgmentalism because Jesus then says in verse 5, he says, you hypocrite first, in other words, before you go to them. So he's not declaring a prohibition about going to somebody and talking to them about something. He says in verse 5, he says, you hypocrite first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus here is warning us not to be judgmental when we go to somebody 
with an issue. But he's not, again, issuing a prohibition against confronting someone about sin in their life or about some sort of a problem that's popped up between the two of us. Instead, what Jesus says is before you go to that person and confront them, before you go to that person and raise the issue, make sure that you spend some time in prayer. Make sure that you spend some time analyzing your own life and your own heart. Uh, Don't be like the hypocrite who's just out there pointing their sharp fingers, pointing out everything that everybody else is doing wrong without taking a look on the inside first. I mean, that would be kind of like a pimp going to and confronting a prostitute about her sin. I thought that was, it's okay. Or it'd be like a mom in in the carpool line who talks about all the other moms in the carpool line, going to one of the moms in the carpool line and confronting her about talking about the moms in the carpool line. Right? But Jesus says, look, before you do any of that, stop and look at this. Still thinking about the pimp thing. (laughs) Before you do any of that, stop and and, and think about the sin in your own life. Get down on your knees. Spend some time in prayer and ask the Lord to show you your own heart. I found that fasting really helps me to get in a good headspace. It breaks my heart. It breaks me personally. And it causes me to repent about the sin in my own life. And that, friend, if I ever have to come to you and talk to you about something going on between the two of us, you can know that I spent that time on my knees, that I spent that time in fasting, and that I prepared my heart before the Lord, and I've let him look on the inside of me and show to me and reveal to me and shine a light on the things going on in my own life before I ever come and talk with one of you. So number one, how do we confront somebody? Number one, we have to be prepared for it spiritually, prepared for it spiritually. Number two, second step in confronting somebody is to go to them one-on-one. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. He didn't say between you and everybody on your Facebook feed. Don't do that. Please don't do that. We're not trying to air out somebody's laundry to the whole world. We're not trying to talk about an issue that you have between yourself and somebody else and post it out there for everybody to learn about. Would you say, didn't that what Paul did? right? Isn't that what Paul did? He put, put this little issue going on between these two ladies out there for everybody to read. But again, in, their, in this particular situation, Paul, under the leading of the Holy Spirit, was aware that the rift that had taken place between these two ladies had enveloped the whole church, and it became a church-wide issue. And that's why Paul brought this thing forward to the whole church, okay? Um, but what Jesus is talking about here is when you or I uh, get out of whack or needs to have some sort of restoration and relationship between ourselves and one or two other people. What do we do that? In that case, Jesus says, go to them one-on-one. Deal with it in a one-on-one situation. Now, let me take a time out here for just a second and address what some of y'all are probably thinking here. Some of you are thinking, I would sooner cut off my right arm than go confront somebody. Right? I'm sure some of you don't want to admit it, but I mean, really, I mean, that's what some of it, confrontation is just not for everybody. Confrontation for some of us is easy. We just go in, we do that, and just we're done with it. But for many of us, the idea of confrontation is, I mean, we'll lose sleep, we'll, we'll, we'll worry about it all day, we'll lose our appetite, and it just becomes a real drag to have to go in and confront somebody about something. I get it. It's easier to just brush things under the rug. I get that. It is less stressful to just say, you know what, this really isn't worth me going and going through all these motions so let's just forget about it. But friends, that sets, that does not, not only does that not solve anything, but it sets us up for greater frustration down the road, and it leaves the person and us 
in a dysfunctional relationship where bitterness will grow, where resentment will grow, where anger will boil up, all because we didn't want to take the step, all because we didn't want to prepare ourselves to confront, because we were afraid to do it. It was just too much trouble. You know, one of the great reliefs that we get to have in life is when we discover that an issue that we have between ourselves and another brother or sister in Christ is really just a misunderstanding. I mean, think about it. Lots of times the things that where we disagree or where we think, where we perceive that there's an issue, if we actually go and talk to that person about it, we're probably on the same page. More than likely, or our heart at least, our intentions are, are in the same place. Um, you know, a lot of the things that we get upset about are sometimes just a big misunderstanding. And I do this. I find myself overthinking the issue. You know, what did they mean in that text message? Well, what were they, what were they trying to say? And what were they trying to communicate in that email? I mean, they put that period. It seemed like it was a bold, strong period right there. I'm not sure what they were intending by that. And then I'm walking around, you know, the grocery store, and I'm in aisle 15, and I see them down in aisle 12. And I'm like, well, they never talked to me. They, they, I saw them go down there. They didn't look my way. They didn't wave or anything like that. I'm like, what did they mean by that? And so I began overthinking it and overblowing all this stuff in my own life. While I was driving down the road, they passed by me. They didn't even wave. They just kept holding, look, looking at this forward. You know, what's going on here? And so we begin to overthink it and we begin to build it up in our mind. And when we finally do come to the place where it's boiled up in our heart and we go to them and we approach them and we deal with the issue and we find out it was just a big misunderstanding. They didn't mean there was actually nothing there at all. Friends, it's one of the great reliefs that we get to have in life. There's so much to be gained in the long term if we'll engage this short-term pain and stress of confrontation. All right, number three. Got two more for you. They'll go really quickly. First step in confronting somebody, number one, is to prepare ourselves through prayer, perhaps fasting, that is to prepare ourselves spiritually, to look down deep on the inside of us, allow God to shine a spotlight on what's going on in our own life, and if there's something there that needs to be addressed, to address it with the Lord, and then go and deal, talk to that person. And then when we do, we're going to go one-on-one, and then finally, number th- or second, third, thirdly, to go to the person one-on-two. I'm sorry, yeah, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 16, Jesus says, but if your brother does not listen to you in that one-on-one, and that, like you don't get satisfaction, they're, they don't seem to be responding, they don't seem to be wanting to forgive you or re- re- receiving what you're saying, take two or three others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So that's step three. If you don't get satisfaction, if you don't feel like there's a willingness to change or willingness to receive the critique, then go to them a second time, he says, and do it with somebody else. Don't go to them a second time by yourself, but go with someone else who understands the situation. Allow them to maybe give some feedback to that person, maybe some things that they hear that you're not hearing. Step four, and finally, hand it off to the elders or the leaders of the church. Jesus says, Matthew 18 and verse 17, all part of this teaching, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Here Jesus directs us to send the issue up the food chain such that it becomes an issue for the local church leadership to deal with. And at that point, friends, it's out of our hands. At that point, it's nothing else for us to follow up on. We've done what we were asked to do. We've done the work of confrontation. We've prayed about it. We've prepared ourselves spiritually. Then we've gone to that person one-on-one. We've gone to that person one-on-two or one-on-three. 
And now we've handed it off to the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, for them to meet with that individual or for them to meet with us and to find out what's going on. And if there's some issue that needs to be addressed or some church discipline issue that needs to be shared, then it'll be uh, addressed and dealt with. Our role is, again, to pray about it and prepare ourselves spiritually, to go to them one-on-one, to go to them one-on-two, and then after that, to just hand it off. Here's what I, over 20 years of ministry, I've been part of these conversations many times, and it's not easy. It's always, it has always been difficult. But here's what I know. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, Jesus said these words. It's one of the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. Notice he didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are those who go and make peace. Jesus calls us to do the humbling work. He calls us to be not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. Getting things right between us and a fellow believer. It may require an uncomfortable conversation or a difficult phone call, but that's what's required if we're going to make peace. Making peace, friends, is worlds apart from keeping the peace. Peacekeepers want to brush this stuff under the rug. Peacekeepers want to say, you know what? It's just not really worth the effort. It's too much trouble. I'll just forget about it. Peacemakers, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are those who wade into the difficult conversations. Now, there's one more aspect to this whole business of confrontation that we haven't talked about, and that is what are we to do when we are the ones who are being confronted? When somebody comes to us and says, look, there's an issue between the two of us, and I want to I address that. How do we respond to that? How do we receive that? Do we kind of throw our hands up, cross our arms, uh, allow ourselves to be run through? I mean, how how should we respond? Well, let me address address that just very briefly. Proverbs 15 and verse 31 says, The heart that listens to life giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Let me read that to us again. The heart that listens to life giving proof, reproof, will dwell among the wise wise. And then Proverbs 12 and verse 15 says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. People are always out looking to self-justify. Somebody comes to them with a critique. Somebody comes to them with a criticism. Somebody comes to them to say, look, there's this issue between the two of us. The fool always says, I'm not interested. The fool is always right in his own eyes. He says, but a wise man listens to advice. Friends, listen, if we think that correction is a bad thing, then we need to change the way we think about correction. Most of us, are, when we're corrected or criticized, our first response is to think that this was a negative thing, but the Bible says no. It's a blessing in your life. Somebody loves you enough to come to you, to share with you an issue that is perceived to be between the two of you, loves you enough to do that difficult work, that's a blessing, the Bible says in your life. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 5 says, a fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Friends, we need to change the way we look at criticism. When God sends a person to criticize us, when the word of God draws us up short and rebukes us, when the Holy Spirit confronts us and says, slow down here just a second, you stop, you think about things here. Friends, we need to regard that as a blessing. We need to learn to see those people who come to us as our friends, not as our enemies. We need to learn to change the way we see correction as a positive thing, not as a negative. 
And I'll close out this morning with this thought. Christian unity is never easy. Imagine that conversation between Iodia and Syntyche. Paul kind of forced the conversation, but they still had to sit down together. Never easy to do. And we can say all day long that we are for Christian unity. Friends, it's one thing to be for Christian unity. It is another thing to do the hard, sometimes confrontational work of maintaining Christian unity. May God help us to be peacemakers in our world. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us from your word this morning, from calling us to be a people apart, to be a people who are unique in the world, to be a people, Lord, who are courageous and brave and who have integrity about the way we want to deal with problems in our world and in relationships. Lord, this morning, we ask in this quiet time of communion that your Holy Spirit would put your finger on some issues that we may have between ourselves and a fellow believer, between ourselves and a family member that need to be confronted. You've been calling us to that work perhaps for years, and we keep brushing it under the rug and putting it aside and keeping the peace. Jesus, you call us to live lives that are distinctive. May we answer that call today. Lord, as we come around this table, we are reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body. We are thankful. We are grateful. And so, God, we share these elements this morning, these symbols of your sacrifice. Lord, encourage us today. Challenge us where we need it. We pray these things and commit this time to you in Christ's holy name. Amen. We invite you to receive the communion elements that are in the seat there in front of you. And then we will continue it with a time of worship. It's you.